turn to Psalm 139. As I mentioned earlier, uh, this is the end of our mini-series on the Psalms. Uh, Next week we jump into Esther chapter 1. And there is a method to my madness, and hopefully it will become clear shortly after we start Esther. So, all right, I hope I've given you time there to get to Psalm 139. Hear the word of our God. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go? From your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, Surely darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, and days that were formed for me, when as yet they were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies make your name in vain. Take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Scriptures, which You have given to us by the Holy Spirit in order to make us wise for salvation through faith in Your Son, Jesus. Make it profitable for us teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in righteousness. Make us mature 
equipped for good works as we study the Scriptures this morning. And we ask this in the name of Christ, our Mediator, Redeemer, Lord, Friend. Amen. If we go back to Eden for a moment in our minds, we remember that Adam and Eve had perfect communion, not just with one another. Okay, Remember, they were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide from one another, and they enjoyed fellowship with one another. They also enjoyed fellowship with God as well. They had nothing to hide from Him either. And so there was a complete process of knowing and being known that was there. There was vulnerability. There were no masks that were worn. And of course, that all changed the moment that Adam and Eve took the forbidden fruit. The very first thing they did is they realized they're naked and they needed to cover up. And so they made for themselves flimsy loincloths out of leaves And then when they heard God coming, they hid. We were made in the image of God. And part of what that means is, precisely because God is love and therefore is a community of love and fellowship, we were made to relate to God and to one another. That's part of how we were made, an essential part of how we were made, precisely because it's the image of God. And yet, because of this intrusion of sin, what we tend to do is exactly what Adam and Eve did after they sinned. We hide from God, and we hide from one another. Because we're still made in the image of God, we want relationship, we want to be known, but because we're sinners, we're afraid of being known. In other words, we're complex people. We're complicated people. Because sin complicates everything. When I wonder why my life is difficult, I have to remember, oh yeah, sin. It complicates everything. It means I now have to have a lock on the door of our building, which now doesn't want to work for me. Okay, Sin complicates everything. But it especially complicates relationships. Our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. That's okay, unless we live Coram Deo. That's the Latin phrase that R.C. Sproul uses in his Table Talk magazine to, to communicate the fact that we live before the face of God. We live in the presence of God. And when you're a sinner, that's not necessarily good news. And so as we go to this psalm this morning, this is, I believe, Jesus' word to the Coram Deo heart. This is David as he wrestles with the fact that he lives in the presence of God before the face of God. This is David under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit trying to help us benefit 
from his experience. Our big idea is that our all-knowing, present, and powerful Savior leads us out of sin and to salvation. How I'm going to approach this this morning is um, um, similar to the Puritans in a sense. I'm going to look at the three doctrinal realities that are found in this psalm that are kind of played out in the first few paragraphs, and then I'm going to apply that at the end. So it's sort of a four-point sermon, but you're okay with that, right? So let's go to our first point, which is really a point of doctrine. God knows all there is to know about you and me. David begins by recognizes by recognizing that God had, past tense, searched me and known me. There's a focus in the very first uh, stanza of this psalm that is upon this, this process of actively knowing. One of the words that you see repeatedly is know. And the reason why God knows so much about David, he reveals, is precisely because God has searched me. He has probed me diligently. He has probed and examined despite difficulty is what David is getting at. God does not just kind of know him merely intellectually, but God knows him also experientially, by experience, observation. We could think of this maybe in these two ways. Some of us know what it's like to be examined. I, of course, had to undergo ordination examination, where these guys in suits, some of them, ties, these guys in ties, asked me all these questions for hour upon hour so that they could understand what it is I believed and how it all fit together to know whether I was suitable to do what I was being asked to do. They had to poke, they had to prod, they had to persist despite perhaps sometimes a examinee's reluctance to speak something. That wasn't me, but I've known guys who have been reluctant, perhaps. Or perhaps think of it this way. We've all been to the doctor. And what does the doctor do? He makes you fill out that little chart, that little questionnaire, so the doctor can figure out maybe what's wrong with you, what are some of your presenting symptoms, but he doesn't just rely upon that little questionnaire. He then asks questions, sometimes questions that you might be a little bit uncomfortable with if you're a modest person, because you're not used to speaking about these things. He's probing. He's not just probing with his words, but then he starts grabbing you, touching you making sure that there's nothing funny going on with your body. That's what's going on. That's what David is communicating. God has done that kind of thing to examine him so that he knows him thoroughly. And through this process, God has gained this experiential knowledge of David. And David would have us understand, therefore, us. The reason this was written for us is that David's experience is not unique. It is ordinary. He is not the only one that God has so searched and known. 
David meditates on this. He's meditating on God's knowledge. And he realizes as he kind of lays this out that God knows his thoughts, that God knows his words even before he speaks those words, and that God knows everything he does. He knows when he sits and when he gets up and everything in between. He knows his thoughts even from afar. He searched out his path. Again, this active knowing that's going on. He searched out David's path and is lying down. David comes to the conclusion that God is acquainted, or perhaps the better word would be intimate, with all his ways. And this ought to be scary in some sense. Because Jesus has said in places like Matthew 12, I tell you on the day of judgment, you will give account for every careless word, that, uh, people rather, will give account for every careless word they speak. And by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And so all of those things that you have perhaps muttered to yourself, God knows. The things you think that no one heard, He knows. I remember one day when I was working at the hospital years ago, and so Amy, be glad she's not here. Oh, there she she is. Not you, Amy, the other Amy. (laughs) Be glad I'm no longer doing EKGs. I just get to go and be your pastor. Okay, I don't have to give you a pre-op EKG. One of my coworkers made me so angry, or I allowed myself to be made so angry, because they were picking on my wife, and I got angry. But here I am wandering through the halls of my little EKG cart, you know, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, I want to punch that person in the face. I just went out there, okay. And someone else said, "What?" <laughs> They thought I was threatening them. And of course, as in most workplaces, there are rules against that. <laughs> so, no, sorry, I'm, I'm not talking about you. I'm just really frustrated with somebody. Okay? But I could have been held accountable for those words. And in fact, I will be held accountable for those words. The words we think that no one hears, God hears. No matter what David does, what he thinks, what he says, God knows it completely. And this is disconcerting. This is why most of us sort of ignore the fact that Google knows everything about your online life. They know what websites you go to. They know what teams that you like or what musical groups you enjoy. All the websites you go to, whether good or bad, they know your purchasing habits And not only Google does, but the NSA does. We ignore this most of the time. And we do the same thing with the knowledge that God knows, not just our online life, but all of our life. But we see, it goes even beyond that, we see that this means that God also knows the motives of the heart. He doesn't just know what we do, but He knows why we do it. I was at a Red Sox game at the Trop in Tampa, actually St. Pete, 
sitting in the bleachers, and this was back in the early 2000s, because this is when they had the blood feud going on. This is when there were a lot of brawls that had taken place between the Red Sox and the Rays. And once again, a, a Red Sox pitch, pitcher hit a Rays player, and the guy a couple rows behind me was like, He meant to do that! And I turned around and said, Who are you, God? <laughs> Only God nearly knows the motive of another person. But he knows why we do what we do. And we see the psalmist here is struggling with this knowledge. I think the, the words here are ambiguous for a reason. Because he, there's a sense of his own ambivalence about what's going on. He feels hemmed in. He feels unable to move. And the very words that he uses are that. They are ambiguous. Because they could be seen positively. That God has him hemmed in so that he's protected on all sides, but it could also mean something negative, that he feels as though God is constraining him or besieging him. It all has to do with how you're related to God, as to whether it's positive or negative. For the unbeliever, this knowledge is completely negative. They feel constrained. They feel besieged. They feel as though God is out to get them, whereas the one who believes feels His protection. So the ambiguity, I think, is important to this because it causes us to ask that question, how do I feel about that knowledge that God has of me? Am I scared to death? Or am I encouraged that He knows me, yet still loves me? And so our covenant God knows our true condition, but remains committed to His people. Secondly, God knows everything because God is everywhere. And so he shifts from what we call the omniscience of God, God's all-knowingness, to God's omnipresence, God being present everywhere. If you like those big theological terms, if you don't, don't worry about it. There's no test. But these two things are connected that all relate to the fact that God is infinite. And this morning, uh, I was waiting for Amy to come back from her walk. And this weekend, I'm reading a book on Thomas, called Thomas Jefferson and the, I think, the Barbary War. And this is one of the first wars our country was in with the Barbary pirates on the northern coast of Africa. And what was interesting to me is that uh, regime change. We started working in regime change all the way back then, 1800s, okay, 1804. And so there was a the rightful Basha of Tripoli had been removed from power by his brother, and the, the idea that the ambassador had was to bring him back, so that, basically to end the war, to put someone friendly to us into power in Tripoli. And so they, they met in Egypt because his brother was trying to kill him. And what was, why I'm bringing this up is that the treaty that they put together starts with these words, God is infinite. That's an odd place to start a treaty, isn't it? And yet, that is where it started. And that is what this psalm is all about. 
the fact that God is infinite. In the first stanza, we see that God is infinite in His knowledge, and here we see He is infinite in His presence. As Stephen Sharnock says in his classic, The Existence and Attributes of God, He that fills all must needs see and know all. And so God is everywhere and fills everything, and that is the problem of the psalmist. Where shall I go from your spirit? Our first dog, Huckleberry, was nicknamed the Visa Dog. Because Visa is everywhere you want to be. And Huckleberry ended up being everywhere you wanted to be. And now we have Cody, who is the Visa Dog Part (laughs) 2. I am constantly tripping over Cody because he is where I want to be. God is the Visa God. He's everywhere I want to be and everywhere I don't want to be. He is everywhere. What what David is meditating on is what Jonah learned the hard way when he boarded the ship to Tarshish, thinking that he could escape God. Well, God sent the storm. Even as God sent mercy in the form of the fish or the whale to swallow him. We see from places like 1 Kings 20 that the nations that were around them thought that there were geographic limits to their gods and the God of Israel as by extension. For instance, And the servants of the king of Syria said to him, Their gods are gods on the hills, and so they were stronger than we. But let us fight them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. So they saw the Lord as a God of the hills and their gods as gods of the plains. And the way for us to defeat Israel is to fight in the plains, not on the hills. There are no geographic boundaries with the infinite God. He is the God of the plains and the hills and the seas and the mountains and everything that lies in between. And we see this as David meditates on it. He talks about, if I go to heaven or the heavens, you are there. If I go down to Sheol, which could mean either hell or the grave, you are there. And so both of those terms, heaven and Sheol, have this sense of ambiguity to them because it could be referring to the abode of God on the one hand and the place of judgment on the other. Or it could be the heavens, the visible heavens, the highest place you can imagine ever being, and the grave, the lowest place you could ever imagine being. Whichever way you want to take it, it's talking about that and everything in between. God is there. And it's not just how high and how low, but we see from the, from the east, the, the dawn to the west, the seas, and everything in between. Confounded, he says that even darkness 
Though it might hide me from you, it cannot hide me from God. And so the things that people do in the darkness are seen even by God. We see this in a number of places. For instance, Amos 9, verse 2, If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Jeremiah 23, verse 23 and 24. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So in both of those places, we see how God brings His infinite presence into play for His people. But once again, I'm not sure there's some ambiguity here. Does David want to hide? Or is he just saying he cannot hide? We're not sure. But I do know this that we often are like Adam and Eve, hiding in the bushes, hoping that God will not find us because we feel guilty. We feel shame. And so we cannot escape God's notice precisely because God is everywhere that we could go. Yes, David, even Washington. Thirdly, God knows everything because He plans everything. David sticks with this idea of the darkness, the unseen places, to reveal God's wonderful works. You see, he then declares to us that people are not accidents. We are not merely the result of a natural process. Now that process is part of what happens to form a human being, but it is not the fullness of what happens to form a human being. He declares, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together. And so David sees himself as a result of God's tender work in the dark place that was his mother's womb. That he was made not by accident, but by purpose, by God. And he was made the way he was by the purpose of God. That can be difficult for us to grasp. But we recognize that even within a fallen world, we are still made the way God intended to make us. Ethan is the way God intended Ethan to be. We don't know why, but He is. And that goes for all of us. That our particular weaknesses exist because of the will of God for a reason. You see, David is showing us that His power, His omnipotence, His, in other words, 
all-powerful or infinite power is not seen only in the big stuff like creation on the grand scale, but also in the little things, the making of an embryo, bringing it to be a fetus, and then a baby that comes out of the womb. We are works of art. We have been formed. We have been knit. We have been woven in darkness. Now, think about that for a moment. Imagine you were the Pope who said to Michelangelo, can you paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel for me? Sure. Can you do it in the dark? Yeah, have you lost your mind? And yet God, because nothing is darkness to Him, is able to do that very thing to create works of art in the dark. He has a plan, he says, for David. David recognizes this. The days that were formed for me, same kind of word that he's just used to talk about his own body, he now uses to talk about his days. His days have been worked together by God just as much as he has. God made him with a plan, with a purpose. And as we think about this in, a, in the context of a psalm and we recognize that it's poetry, we must rec- we could easily think it's only poetry. But it's not just cool poetry. There's something vastly significant going on here, and we can see this from other parts of Scripture. For instance, Genesis 25, Esau and Jacob. We read that the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And so she's not sure what's going on in her body, but she understands this, or the Scriptures have us understand it as, the boys are struggling, which would not stop when they left the womb. But what we see when she inquires of the Lord is that what she learns is, The older will serve the younger. Their days had been formed by God before they came out of the womb, before they had done right or wrong. Paul borrows this very language in Romans 9 to make a point of salvation. It's not just Esau and Jacob. We see Jeremiah himself in his call that we heard from in Jeremiah 1. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You didn't exist yet, but I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated or set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before he even came out of the womb, God had set him apart in those form days as prophet to the nations. God didn't wait and see what kind of person Jeremiah was going to be, and then, oh man, I'll make him a prophet but to make God's calling and election sure. He chose them before that. Not even Him. Or just them. John the baptizer, for instance. 
He's still in the womb. And when Mary shows up with the baby Jesus in her womb, John the baptizer leaps. And the, the Scripture then declares that she then speaks in the power of the Holy Spirit and she speaks about that leaping. It's not just her, her interpretation of what happened, it's the Holy Spirit's interpretation of what happened. And so we see that Esau, Jacob, Jeremiah, John, and everyone else was a person before they came out of the womb. I make fun of politics a lot from up here because there's a lot to make fun of. When you go to vote, you need to keep this in mind. Because that is a person. And therefore precious to God. It is not a thing that is in the womb. It is a person. We can't just pretend it's not. Our theology must be brought into the voting booth. Oh, we don't really believe it. I'm not saying go all theonomist or anything like that. But how you vote matters in the eyes of God. That's all I'm saying on that. Because that's not what I like to do. But this is an issue that I think is of grave importance. We're letting a massacre occur every day. That's wrong. So God's pervasive knowledge, presence, and power work together in God's providence. Let's get to the application of this that David kind of lays out in the last two stanzas. And I'm going to kind of stick them together because they are connected. We are to trust God to change you from worldly to godly. David surprises us, perhaps, when he prays for God to slay the wicked and he seeks to separate himself from the wicked. This sounds harsh. But we must recognize how he's describing these people. That they hate God. It's not simply that they're doing things that we don't like or we don't agree with, but they're acting on a hatred for God and the boundaries He has established for humanity. And so we see similar statements, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 6, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness 
with, uh, with lawlessness? And what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This passage alerts us that there can be a danger that takes place. James Boyce in his commentary notes that, that while loving the sinner and hating the sin is, is a, a good idea, okay, it's also a dangerous sort of thing. Because if we love the sinner too much, we can subtly begin to love the sin too. We can forget to separate the two. We have to be careful to maintain that distinction lest we love the sin. But he goes on and he notes that part of the problem with that as well is I am a sinner. And so there is an allure towards sin. The reason why I can become a worldly type of person is precisely because I have a sinful heart and therefore find that alluring. The problem is not out there. The problem is in here. And so David knows that he must stay away from the sinners lest he himself be tempted to participate in their sin. He's not saying this as a holier-than-thou kind of person, but one who recognizes the danger they pose to himself. We see in James 1, for instance, that religion is, that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is, and the second thing he mentions is to keep oneself unstained from the world. The Westminster Confession of Faith. This week I was studying sanctification for our Sunday school class. And there in chapter 13, I read these words, some from paragraph 2 and some from paragraph 3. There abiding still, some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And then in paragraph 3, in which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail. Did you catch that? For a time, the corruption may prevail. Christians can be entangled by sin. That's part of why we have to be very careful about whose company we keep. Because it is easy for us to be entangled by certain sins. And those which may entangle me are going to be different from those which may entangle you. But I shouldn't consider myself immune from anything. And so I think it's in light of that idea that David then says, as almost a bookend to this, because remember, 
You have searched me and known me. Now he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Because of his own sinfulness, I believe he's crying out for grace so that his sin problem is addressed in the present instead of waiting until the day of judgment. He wants it dealt with now, not then. He wants God to change His grievous or wicked way so that He walks in the way everlasting. How does this happen? First off, this happens because we know from Romans 5 that Jesus died for us when we were God's enemies. He does not wait until we become God's friends to die on the cross for us, but while we're enemies, He does in order to make us God's friends, God's children. And so we see the commitment of God on our behalf to make us what we are not yet and what we are unable to do for ourselves. Jesus stands in our stead, Coram Deo. He's fully known by God. He was fully tested by God, just as we see in Hebrews 4, and yet without sin. And He stands in our stead so that the wrath of God falls on Him and not us. So the blessing of God can fall on us. And so there's a way to live Coram Deo with God without fear, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. You see, but that's not all He does. You see, the way everlasting is Jesus remaking us in His image. That thing we call sanctification. We don't remain unchanged, but He changes us. And so Jesus knows us completely. Jesus loves us. Jesus changes us and has set us apart. But the process is not completed until glorification or the return of Christ. So this week, one of my old friends had asked the the question because she has family members who have died who don't believe in Jesus. And she asked a common, it's actually a common question. How can I rejoice in heaven when people I love are in hell? And my answer to this is from a position very similar to hers. I'm the only Christian in my family. And I think the answer is in this psalm. I can't grasp it yet, but you know I don't experience it yet, rather. Intellectually, I, I, I kind of get it. When Jesus returns, and I'm no longer as sinful as I am, my love for Him will be so great and my allegiance toward Him will be so perfect and pure that I indeed will see His enemies as my enemies. That part of the psalm there will not be brought to fruition completely until Jesus returns. And the people who are related to me by blood, while I care for them now, 
I will see them then only in relationship to Jesus Christ. Whether they love him or not. Whether they hate him. We can't get that now. We can't, we, we can't live that way now. That is something for then. That's part of the not yet of our salvation. But when we ask him to search us, we must ask, how is it that he searches us? And there we return again to Hebrews 4. Because he talks about the Word of God which is living and active and cutting to the marrow and to the bone. It is, I believe, through the Word of God that He searches us. He exposes what we really believe. He exposes what we really love and shows us. So we can repent. He shows us in um, doses we can deal with. Because if He showed us everything at once, we would fall apart emotionally and psychologically. If you knew what you were really like, you'd go crazy. And so he mercifully shows you bit by bit by bit. So, living quorum Deo, living before the face of God, is in many ways a very scary proposition. The infinite God is and works everywhere and knows everything. We are fully exposed before Him, not just physically, but also psychologically and emotionally. Due to our pervasive sinfulness, this is scary because He is holy and just. We see even here the destruction of the wicked. And that should include us. Not just them. But we see here as well God's commitment to His people, which is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, because He leads us out of sin and into the way everlasting through Jesus our Savior who died in our place. And so if you believe that, Living quorum Deo ceases to be scary and becomes comforting. Because God not only knows your sin, but He knows your trials and He sends help. But if you're still scared, then we must ask, what do we really believe? Let's pray. Father, this is in some ways a psalm that really reveals the heart. It's one of the ways in which you reveal to us what you have seen when you have searched us. Based on how we respond to it. Whether we cower in fear or we go, praise God. He knows me. He still loves me. He still takes care of me. Search us, Father. Know us. Help us to listen 
to what you say about our true condition. Help us to grow in our trust of Jesus Christ. Help us to grow in our awareness of our sin and therefore to grow in our repentance. In other words, Father, lead us on that way everlasting so that we will bring glory to you and that we will enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.